serving with eyes wide open, doing short-term missions with cultural intelligence by David A. Livermore. This is the updated edition. I am a missionary uh, daughter and I hope this will inspire you to serve. Part one, looking through a wide angle lens, globalization and the church. We begin broadening our view by looking through a wide angle lens at the 21st century world. After surviving the Cold War, the nuclear arms race, two world wars, several genocide attempts, and numerous totalitarian regimes, we find ourselves well into a new century. North Americans in 1900 had a life expectancy of 47, whereas today it's 76. Our world has undergone immense change over the last century. The Christian church has been in a state of major transition as well, both local congregations and the church at large. Widening our perspective on our world should be an ongoing process for all of us. The next two chapters present a few snapshots of our world, the world as a whole and the worldwide Christian church. Like any snapshot, these pictures give us only a glimpse into the realities behind the images. It's important to begin with a wide-angle view before focusing more specifically on short-term missions work. Join me on a quick tour around the world as we begin the journey towards serving with eyes wide open. Chapter 1. One World. Snapshots of the Globe. On a recent visit to Seattle, I met my friend Tony for lunch. Tony lives in Mexico City, and we were both visiting Seattle at the same time. We met at an easy-to-find spot in Seattle's Chinatown and walked through the International District for a few minutes before ending up at a French cafe. We walked inside, and soon after we were seated, a Haitian woman came up to take our order. She suggested some English breakfast tea with our entrees. As she took our order, a group of Japanese businessmen sat down at the table behind us. I looked at Tony and said, do you see what just happened? In a matter of three minutes, we've encountered Mexican, American, Chinese, French, Haitian, English, and Japanese cultures. Tony and I launched into an interesting discussion about our globalized world, experiencing a mosaic of cultures as Tony and I did that day, used to be reserved for the jet-setting few who hung out in international airports, but the world is becoming increasingly smaller for all of us. At the same time, Americans still fare poorly in our awareness of what's going on in the world. Our collective global consciousness is pretty dismal, and many mainstream media outlets do little to help. Our family often host international guests in our home, and they're forever frustrated that they can't get more than a passing glimpse of world events from our major news shows. Becoming globally conscious doesn't come easily. It requires extra effort on our part. 
We're all citizens of a global world, whether we realize it or not. Our journey into a widened perspective on global missions begins by looking at some of the predominant issues facing our 21st century world. While by no means an exhaustive list, some of the most important issues facing us include the following snapshots. Snapshot one, growing population of the world. Every second, four babies are born. Four more babies were just born. And four more. And four more. And four more. It continues day after day after day. The population of the world growing at a rapid rate. More than twice as many people are born each day than die. All this adds up to a world population of more than 7 billion people. Line is all up in single file around the world and we circle the globe more than 112 times. At this rate, we can expect a population of 8 billion people by the year 2025. Where do all these people live? 20% live in China, 20% live in India, 5% live in the United States, 55% live in the other nations of the world. Developing nations are growing rapidly while their industrialized neighbors remain relatively static. The 7 billion of us are scattered throughout approximately 200 nations, but there are more than 5,000 identifiable ethnocultural groups in the world. Nearly half of the people in the world are children. 40% of the world's population is under the age of 15, while less than 20% of North Americans are under 15. Many of our global children have a dismal future. It's hard to grow up when you're poor, marginalized, and forgotten. Health services are few and far between for most children in the world. My wife, Linda, and I have often struggled with whether our girls' school system, teachers, and the corresponding curricula are our best options for them. Meanwhile, over one billion children have no options and no access to schools. The majority of schools that do exist in the world are poorly run and costly to attend. Perspective. That's what we're after in this journey together. Open your eyes wider, look around you. There have never been this many people alive in the world. Four more babies were just born. And four more. Snapshot two. Poverty versus wealth. Many of our fellow citizens around the globe face desperate economic circumstances. This is a perspective I've continually tried to give my kids. One time shortly after dinner, Grace, who was five or six at the time, said, Daddy, I'm hungry. I need a snack. Emily, her older sister, smirked at me, knowing this was the perfect opportunity for my soapbox speech. Right on cue, I started in. Gracie, how can you be hungry? We just finished a good dinner. Millions of children in the world won't get a meal like that all month. Sorry, Daddy. Grace interrupted. I mean, I want a snack. This has become standing practice for us as a family. Whenever one of us says, I need, someone else chimes in and says, need or want. My girls love it when they catch me saying, I need coffee. We're working hard to remember that we're among the haves when so many in the world are among the have-nots. The point is not to be guilt-ridden, middle-class Christians, but we want to live with the spirit of generosity and be 
continually mindful of the chasm between the rich and the poor in our world. Read these statistics slowly and deliberately. 20% of the people in the world live on $1 a day. Another 20% live on $2 a day. 20% of us live on more than $70 a day. The remaining 40% are somewhere in between. And how about this? The combined income of the 447 wealthiest people in the world is larger than the combined income of 50% of the world's population. Did you catch that? 447 people have more money than the combined assets of 3.5 billion people in the world. Sissé, a character in Richard Dooling's riveting novel, White Man's Grave, is a North American who has moved to Sierra Leone, where he has become fully immersed as a local. After five years away from the United States, Sissé describes the sickening experience he had going back for a brief visit to the United States. I resolved to sit on my mother's front porch and soak up some American village life to remind myself of what I had left behind. It was Saturday. My mother's next-door neighbor, a well-groomed, weight-gifted, vertically challenged accountant named Dave, brought out a leaf blower, a lawn mower, a leaf grinder, a mulcher, an edgar, and a weed trimmer. He worked all day, making a terrific racket, chopping, trimming, and spraying toxins on a small patch of ground, which produced absolutely no food only grass. The rest of the world spent the day standing in swamp water, trying to grow a few mouthfuls of rice, while Dave sat on his porch with a cold beer, admiring his chemical lawn. Sickening? You bet. It was time to go back to Africa. This is more than well-written fiction. This is reality. Americans make up 5% of the world's population, but we consume 50% of the world's resources. Think about that. We consume half of the world's resources. The problem of hunger in the world is not the Earth's inability to produce food for 7 billion people. It's the inequitable distribution of food. Ravi, a seven-year-old boy I met in Delhi, is among the 95% of the world's population that isn't American. Ravi works 10 to 12 hours a day, seven days a week, shining shoes on the streets of Delhi. Ravi faces four years of bonded labor in order to pay back a $35 loan his parents took out for his sister's wedding. Ravi will spend the next four years paying off a debt that's less than what I spent on dinner out last night. The inequities continue. More than 2 billion children live in our world, half in poverty. One of every four children in the world has to work instead of going to school. 8% of people in the world own a car. Perspective. Perspective on need. Perspective on hunger. Perspective on money. Do you feel as if you're living paycheck to paycheck? You may well be. And my point is not to diminish the financial challenges facing many North Americans, but it's all about perspective. It's all about serving with eyes wide open. Snapshot three, disease. If the above statistics are not enough to ruin your appetite, how about this? 
30,000 people will die today from preventable diseases. More than 3,000 Americans lost their lives on 9-11. Many of us remember where we were when we first heard the news that day. 3,000 lives were lost in a matter of hours. We pause each year on September 11 to remember the victims and their families, and we should. Yet, how many of us will remember where we were when we learned that 30,000 people will die today from preventable diseases? It's all too easy to read that, say, wow, that's horrible, and move on. 30,000 people will die today. More than 200,000, the population of the city where I live, will die this week from preventable diseases. A great many of the deaths today will occur because the victims couldn't get basic medicines that I can buy over the counter at a local drugstore. Many of those who die today will be children. In fact, a child dies of hunger every 16 seconds. Just about every time I take a breath, another child dies of hunger. 40% of the people in the world lack basic sanitation facilities. Over 1 billion people have unsafe drinking water. Perspective. Perspective on the world in which we live. That's where we're headed with all this. One of the worst diseases facing us is HIV-AIDS. AIDS threatens the social well-being of entire nations. Almost 40 million people are infected with the virus, with another 100,000 infected daily. These numbers are expected to double by 2015. We must dispel the notion that AIDS is simply just punishment upon those who are sexually promiscuous. The number one way children in Mozambique contract the HIV virus is by sharpening their pencils with their father's razor blades. In many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, the pastorate has become a burial business. Pastors bury AIDS victims daily, while teenagers and grandparents figure out how to lead households in which both parents have died. Over 15 million children under the age of 15 have lost one or both parents to AIDS. And that figure is expected to double by the year 2015. The next wave of the pandemic is expected to be in India, China, and Russia, home to almost one third of the world's population. We are at the beginning of this crisis, not the end. This is a century long struggle. Of the seven billion people in the world, 40% live on $2 or less a day. AIDS is eliminating entire generations in some communities. All the numbers can become overwhelming, even numbing, but we must gain perspective on the world in which we live. Let's open our eyes in order to improve the way we serve. Snapshot four, refugees. Too many people on our planet are being forced out of their homes and communities. There's been a dramatic increase in the number of re refugees over the last 30 years. In 1975, 2.5 million people were known to be refugees. Today, more than 12 million people have been forced out of their native countries. Another 24 million people have fled conflict and persecution and are internally displaced within their own countries. The vast majority of refugees are women and children, and more than 65% are Muslim. As if being displaced from their homes and communities isn't enough, militia groups, rebels, and government leaders often take advantage of vulnerable refugees. 
aid sent to refugees is often intercepted and hoarded by abusive leaders. Drugs intended to heal children are taken and sold. And food sent to families is enjoyed by warlords. Worst of all, refugees are abused physically and often killed simply to make a statement to other groups struggling for power. Sadly, young mothers such as Isatu Touré in Sierra Leone are not an anomaly in the 21st century. Isatu and her husband were living in a refugee camp in Sierra Leone along with their four young children. One morning, heavily armed men entered their house and demanded all their possessions. The rebels became upset when Isatu and her husband had only 30,000 leones of local currency to give them. On the spot, the rebels killed Isatu's younger sister, who was also living there, and brutally murdered Isatu's husband right before her eyes. Isatu gathered her children and fled from the refugee camp into the bush, where she ran into another group of rebels who were lining people up and chopping off their hands. Isatu says, I was praying heavily, and then my two-year-old daughter started to cry. They said the child was causing lots of noise for them. One of them took her from me, while another dug a hole to bury her alive. I could not do anything, and my baby cried until she died. Isatu's story speaks for itself. Perspective. Snapshot 5. Muck world. Globalization is a broad term with many meanings, but the term is most often associated with the expansion of business and capitalism across national borders. Serving with eyes wide open includes gaining perspective on this growing reality in our world. Marketing products and services that have been profitable in developed nations and selling them overseas is often referred to as a McDonaldization of the world, or McWorld for short. McDonald's is the epitome of McWorld. You can get the same french fries in Quito, Delhi, and Toronto. And the most universal product in the world is Coca-Cola. Or consider one of my addictions, Starbucks. You could be dropped into a Starbucks in Bangkok and have a hard time knowing whether you're in Bangkok, Seattle, Shanghai, or Sydney. The same drinks are available. The same font adorns the signage and the chairs, lighting, color on the walls, and music are all strangely familiar. It's all part of the world experience of Starbucks. Granted, even McDonald's, KFC, and Starbucks have some menu offerings that reflect local tastes and customs. But on the whole, the experience at a muck world business is much the same wherever you go. When I travel, I love to eat in local establishments. And I thoroughly enjoy trying new foods. I have to admit, however, that sometimes I'm really happy to find a Starbucks where I can get my predictable favorite drink. Yet, I'm sometimes haunted by the implications of getting Indonesians to switch from tea to frappuccinos, from sandals to Nikes, from oxen to SUVs, and from indigenous movies to Hollywood. This tension needs to be incorporated into our widened perspective on the 21st century world. For example, consider that on average, North American companies make a 42% return on their China operations. Apparel workers in the United States make $9.56 an hour. 
in El Salvador, apparel workers make $1.65. In China, they make between 68 and 88 cents. Christian business people need to help us wrestle with these realities and consider the ethical issues involved and the accountability structures needed for individuals and organizations working cross-culturally. There is a growing movement in the corporate arena described as conscious capitalism. I'm excited about business professionals looking holistically at how to use business to respond to some of the pressing issues of our world. And I appreciate the economists and business leaders who are helping us grapple with the complexities of muck world, rather than simply saying it's all good or it's all bad. The realities of the muck world need to be included in our widened perspective. In addition, muck world is creating a virtual global culture of sorts, especially among youth. A few years ago, a New York City-based ad agency videotaped rooms of teenagers in 25 different countries. The convergence of what was found in rooms from Los Angeles to Mexico City to Tokyo made it difficult to see any cross any cultural differences. Basketballs sat next to soccer balls, and closets overflowed with an international unisex uniform, baggy Levi's or Dizzle jeans, NBA jackets, and rugged shoes from Timberland or Dr. Martens. In a world divided by trade wars and tribalism, teenagers of all people are the new unifying force. From the steamy playgrounds of Los Angeles to the stately boulevards of Singapore, kids show amazing similarities in taste, language, and attitude. Propelled by mighty careers like MTV, trends spread with sorcerous speed. Teens almost everywhere buy a common gallery of products, Reebok sports shoes, Procter & Gratton Bolt, CoverGirl makeup, Sega, and Nintendo video games, Pepsi, etc. We must not too quickly assume that globalization implies we're moving toward a uniform global culture. Cultural differences abound, and we'll see that throughout this book. However, to a certain degree, globalization is shaping the lives of individuals from the urban centers of Shanghai to the remote villages of Madagascar. McWorld has brought cross-cultural encounters into our daily lives. Working alongside refugees from Bosnia and Sudan, instant messaging, people with similar interests across 24 time zones and working in organizations that assume a global presence are just a few ways we encounter globalization. Snapshot six, fundamentalism versus pluralism. While seemingly more philosophical, this last snapshot is as important to our perspective on the world as the others. On the one hand, there is a growing movement of fundamentalists in today's world who declare there is one right way to view the world, and it's our way. Simultaneously, a growing number of pluralists say there's no one right way to view the world. Develop your own view. Just don't force it on me. The clash of fundamentalism versus pluralism is at the center of most of our contemporary conflicts and wars. A world coming together culturally and commercially, simultaneously becoming more and more divided religiously and ethnically.
In the 1990s, words like jihad and al-Qaeda were unfamiliar to most North Americans. Now they're part of our everyday vocabulary. Watching news reports of 14-year-old boys in Afghanistan skipping along with AK-47s strapped over their shoulders has almost become ho-hum to us. Yet, many Americans are still confused as to why the terrorists hate us so much. In relation to suicide bombers, we ask what's wrong with those people that they'd kill themselves in order to dominate innocent people. If anyone should understand the conviction and passion driving the terrorist movements around the world, it's Christians. Jihad, in its mildest form, is a kind of Islamic zeal held by people committed to proselytizing the world, no matter what it takes. Of course, it becomes extreme when it gets expressed through bloody holy war on behalf of religious conviction, just as the Crusades were a case of Christian evangelism gone bad. As a concept, however, fundamentalist fervor is as familiar to Christians, Hindus, Arabs, and Germans as it is to Muslims. Jihad, an Islamic expression of fundamentalism, is simply the absolute confidence in the truth of one's position. In contrast, Pluralism attempts to eliminate the dominance of any one religion or viewpoint. It assumes that multiple and conflicting opinions and philosophies should exist and further should be regarded as equals. This kind of pluralistic philosophy permeates the storylines of movies, songs, and books distributed through globalization. Globalization is typically seen as an expression and agent of pluralism. Yet globalization also seems to be based on an essential value held by radical fundamentalists, the core value of domination, bringing the world a uniform offering of products, services, and entertainment options is assumed to be good for all. The coexistence of passion pluralists with ruthless fundamentalists will continue to create tensions worthy of our attention. Such tension is faced by the worldwide community of Christians as well. Lemin Sane, a Gambian Christian scholar, says, Northern liberal Christianity has become a do-as-you-please religion, deeply accommodated to the post-Christian values of the secular Northlands. The new Christianity of the global South and East, example given, Africa, Latin America, India, which bears the scars of hardship and persecution, will clash increasingly with its urbane and worldly northern counterpart, will further explore the realities of the Christian church in the 21st century in the next chapter. Concluding thoughts. These snapshots are an initial step toward helping us open our eyes. The statistics, inequities, and sheer enormity of global issues facing our generation can be mind-numbing. What can I possibly do about the fact that one in 3,700 American women die in childbirth, whereas one in 16 sub-Saharan African women die in childbirth? I'm not interested in putting you on an overwhelming guilt ship. Guilt and shame do little to change these realities, but I do want to bring perspective to how we live our lives and think about the circumstances of many of the people we'll encounter on our short-term missions experiences. 
perspective and awareness alone are not enough, but they are an essential starting point for serving with eyes wide open. If you want to continue to read this book, this is what it is about. Your passport to learning how short-term missions can best serve Christ's kingdom. Short-term mission trips are a great way to impact the kingdom, yet they can lack effectiveness because of mistakes or naivety on the part of participants. In this insightful book, David A. Livermore calls us to serve with our eyes open to global and cultural realities so we can become more effective cross-cultural ministers. Winner of an Outreach Resource of the Year Award in Global Outreach from Outreach Magazine, Serving with Eyes Wide Open is a must-have book for anyone doing a short-term mission or service project, whether domestic or overseas, now updated throughout to reflect the changing mission field. The reviews are as follows. Every youth worker thinking of leading a short-term trip needs to read this book. By Mark Ostreicher, partner in the Youth Cartel. A challenging, well-supported, and carefully crafted tool that will transform your missions and service ministries into opportunities. By Chap Clark. Professor of Youth, Family, and Culture, Fuller Theological Seminary. Livermore does a terrific job of looking at the world today, asking stimulating questions about our approach to missions and giving practical insights into cultural intelligence by Daryl Nuss, Executive Director of National Network of Youth Ministries. Livermore draws on his formal training, personal experience, theological insight and contemporary research to challenge our cultural understanding of short-term mission experiences and their impact on our service and ministry. By Terry Linhart, Chair, Department of Religion and Philosophy, Bethel College, Indiana. This is a must, not only for church mission committees, but for anyone who participates in short-term or long-term missions by Ruth A. Tucker, author, From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya, A Biographical History of Christian Missions. This was first published in 2006. So, if you are earnestly seeking a book on short-term missions, Go and get this copy.